Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of Talks Talk. I'm Matt Zuckerman, fellow at the UMass Division of Toxicology. And on this episode, we are going to talk about opiates and some of the limits and barriers that we run into when we use them specifically hyperalgesia, and some ways to combat that. We'll be talking to Eric Brush and Steve Bird. Additionally, I wanted to announce that on an upcoming episode, we will be having a bit of a celebrity interview. We're going to try and get sort of a big toxicology or drug celebrity. And if you have any suggestions or any ideas for that, feel free to let us know. Let us know who you'd like to see on the show. You can send us those suggestions at our email, talkstalk at talkstalk.org, or you can also send us via our Twitter feed at TalksTalk or even our Facebook page. Keep in mind, this is a talk celebrity, so we are not going to be shooting for Ben Affleck. But if you have anyone you'd like to hear or see, or if you want to try and take a guess as to who's coming on, feel free to drop us a line. Here is our first segment on opioid-induced hyperalgesia. What to do when the opiates we're giving actually make our patients have more pain. Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of Talks Talk. I'm Matt Zuckerman, Toxicology Fellow at the UMass Division of Toxicology. And today I have the uh, pleasure of talking to Eric Brush, a faculty member here, about a recent publication. Eric, did I get your accolades? How do you want to be called? Uh, Eric Brush would be perfect. Okay, very good. All right. Recently, if you've been reading JMT, in the December issue of JMT, there's an article entitled Complications of Long-Term Opioid Therapy for Management of Chronic Pain, The Paradox of Opioid-Induced Hyperalgesia, which is one of my favorite words. So I just wanted to talk to you, Eric, about the article. It's a fascinating article. I highly recommend everyone checking it out. So I was, I was wondering, why did you write this article? So the idea came from an all-day platform session that was given at one of the ACMT national conferences. The concept for the day was to talk about opioids and some more novel emerging concepts surrounding them, both positive and negative. So I was asked to consider some of the potential negative issues surrounding the use of opioids as it relates to toxicology and emergency medicine. And uh, a novel emerging concept uh, has been this idea of opioid-induced hyperalgesia, meaning that opioids in and of themselves can actually induce a syndrome of pain, which is obviously a paradox since we uh, have always considered opioids a therapy uh, for the treatment of pain. Okay, yeah, and that's one of the things I found really interesting about this article, because I feel like right now opioids are a huge issue and, and growing bigger every day, it seems like. We in the U.S. prescribe more opioids than anybody else to everyone. And anyone who's ever worked a busy ED shift sees somebody who's chronically on opioids and then comes in with some pain-related complaint, and they can be very difficult to treat. 
I think one of the worst patients I ever saw in pain was a chronic Suboxone user who had um, iritis and nothing I could do would get him comfortable. And I've heard about people getting intubated, you know, for pain control. And we always think, okay, well, the opioids just aren't working. Either, honestly, some of us, there's a little voice that says, you're just a wimp. And then sometimes we say, well, because of your chronic dependence, the opioids are less effective. But, but this, yeah, it does put the paradigm on its head and seems to say that, um, that it's actually causing pain. And I think that we're used to the idea that pharmacology is fact and that everything that we learn in medical school is uh, true and accurate. And we see people in pain with acute fractures or other conditions. We administer morphine or uh, hydromorphone, and we see immediate relief. So we're trained to believe that that's just the way that things are. And uh, if we see something that contradicts that, uh, we try to explain it another way. So if we see a patient who has chronic pain, is on methadone, suboxone, high doses of oxycontin, whatever it might be, they come in complaining of pain. And while we might want to assume that that pain is real and try to treat it, we give them morphine or some other opioid pain medication and see that it doesn't work. So we immediately try to explain why that would be. And because it does not fit in with our understanding of pharmacology, I think we immediately assume the worst, that they're lying, that they're tolerant, that they're on much higher doses than they're leading us to believe, that they're seeking, that they're trying to get high. So all kinds of explanations, which in some cases may be accurate. However, you know, there's emerging evidence that that may not actually be the case, that this pain may be, in fact, induced by opioids themselves in, in the context of chronic use. I think that's very true. And tragically, that's, um, that's one of the undiscussed problems with opioids and morphine is um, it's framed the pain debate. If I give you um, morphine and it doesn't work, you don't have real pain. And when you talk to somebody about whether or not they're managing a patient's pain, all they'll tell you is, I don't give opiates. And it really, um, it sort of becomes a big problem. So is there any evidence for this theory? Uh, there's pretty clear evidence in animal models. Uh, in humans, that's more emerging data that um, you know, I think the research world is trying to get a better hold on. But in animals, it's actually rather easy to study. If you do any number of different noxious stimuli that you apply to an animal, you can show or you can measure basically what their pain tolerance is. Uh, in other words, if you take a rat and you apply a noxious stimulus to its paw, such as a heat stimulus, you'll see that the, the rat's able to you know, tolerate that pain, or at least what we perceive as tolerance for a certain period of time, a number of seconds, at which point uh, they will withdraw their paw away from this painful stimulus, and we interpret that as being their pain threshold. And you can then administer morphine to that animal, and you'll see that that pain threshold lengthens quite a bit. And they may leave their paw you know, on this heated stimulus uh, for a much longer period of time because we presume that they're not any longer experiencing pain from it. Uh, so therefore, we you know, see that morphine has dampened their pain response. But interestingly, we find that if we apply that same stimulus over and over again in the context of using morphine, now all of a sudden that delay or that threshold in pain starts to shrink back to baseline uh, to where now, despite being on the same doses of morphine every day, they're quicker to withdraw their paw away from this. And then paradoxically, what we well, find... And so, so that's very interesting. And that could be predicted according to the old paradigm, right? Sure. That could be explained as just a tolerance to the analgesic effect of, of the opioid. Okay. So it's sort of a return to baseline or... Uh, diminishing effect to the opioid despite 
continuous administration. Explaining why patients on chronic opioids sort of invariably need higher doses over time as they become tolerant to them. Exactly. Okay. But it seems like there's more. There is more. At some point in research models, so if you say that at baseline, without ever having any opiate exposure, a rat will leave its paw on the hot plate for five seconds before withdrawing. Now, after continuous opioid administration, you'll find that the rat may actually withdraw their paw even quicker, maybe only for a second or two. Is the rat seeking? Drug seeking? Probably not, although we can't prove that. It seems more consistent that the opioid administration has in some way produced a hypersensitive response in the animal to where they, they are perceiving a higher level of pain than a comparison model. And now why would that happen, though? Because, I mean, with, with usually when we talk about opioid pain control, we talk about it being mediated through the mu receptor, everyone's favorite receptor. So how could it be bad? You could think of it sort of conceptually in that pain is a very primitive experience, and it's very adaptive. It's how we learn to navigate our environment safely. If we experience pain from something, we're taught at some level that whatever we've done to experience this pain is not a good idea, such as touching fire. So it's a very primitive... Fire bad. Fire is bad. It's a very primitive and very adaptive response. So it's not surprising that pharmacologic interventions on our part to try to dampen that experience may over time be sort of overshadowed by the need of our uh, nervous system to experience pain. So our nervous system is almost trying to reinstate that very important negative stimulus that keeps us alive. Yes. Do you Um, think that's why chronic opiate patients sometimes lack the innate tendency to keep themselves alive? (laughs) And thus present in in frequent numbers to our emergency departments with various complaints? Possibly. Possibly. And, uh, sorry. And Mm. so, but is it all mu receptor mediated? It's not. I mean... The concept of opioid-induced hyperalgesia, there are many different neurotransmitters and neuromodulators that have been identified as potential mechanisms for this response. The traditional thought of downregulation of mu receptors that explains tolerance doesn't provide an explanation for this paradoxical increased sensitivity. It really only explains lack of response to opioids. And just to, so, just to clarify for some people, what Dr. Brush is referring to is, of course, we have endogenous opiate agonists in our body, which agonize mu receptors. By administering exogenous compounds that sort of hit those receptors, it's normal for our body to downregulate the receptor to try and return us to kind of a homeostatic baseline. And that would mean that the same amount of substance would have less effect because it's got less receptor to hit. Um, Some people also talk about this similarly with sort of Black Mondays with uh, serotonergic agents and a lot of other agents that are meant to modulate our brain chemistry can sometimes paradoxically decrease the effectiveness of the endogenous neurotransmitter. But so it's more than that, though, you say? It is more than that. First of all, we have to remember that there's more than just one type of opioid receptor. Mu is the one that we most commonly think of, but kappa, delta, ORL1. And I think the kappa receptor has received a lot of attention. Its endogenous ligand, which is dynorphin, is sort of a curious creature. In some instances, we find that agonism at the kappa receptor can produce analgesia at the spinal level. However, increased levels of dynorphin in the spine which again is the endogenous ligand for the kappa receptor, 
increased levels of dynorphin can paradoxically create uh, uh, increased pain in some patients. And we do find that experimentally, long-term use of opioids can actually increase levels of spinal dynorphin. It's just one example of many different neurotransmitters and receptors that have been identified as potential explanations. And is that one of the theoretical reasons why, I mean, some people are talking about micro doses of naloxone as a means of increasing the effectiveness of opiates? Right. And some people have argued that that would be effective because, you know, you are decreasing binding at some receptors and increasing binding at others, maybe decreasing at the kappa and increasing it at mu. It's possible. Yes. But what about NMDA? So NMDA has been a hot topic because NMDA receptors are co-localized with mu receptors at the spinal level. And it seems that some of the effects that are experimentally induced with chronic opioid administration mimic that of stimulation at the NMDA receptor. So it's almost as if chronic administration of opioids lose their ability to have an opiate effect at the biochemical level and instead take on an NMDA effect, which can be uh, increasing release in the spinal cord of nociceptive neurotransmitters such as glutamate, substance P, calcitonin gene-related peptide, and therefore actually increase pain signaling up toward the, the central nervous system. Okay. And then, so this is all well and good, and it's fun to burn mice, I guess, to some people, but is there any data in, people, in humans? Uh, there is some data in humans. A lot of what's been done in chronic methadone use. One of the, the models that best explains or best illustrates the concept was done in um, opioid-tolerant patients that are on chronic methadone therapy versus controls. And what they did uh, is, they, for, for example, the control person who has no prior opiate exposure would be subjected to a painful stimulus, and in this case it was known as the cold presser test. And this is where a subject will submerge their arm in an ice bath, and they will report to the examiner when they experience pain, and that will be timed. Uh, then they will, again, uh, the next timed event is when they can no longer tolerate the pain, so they actually pull their arm out of the ice bath. And you'll find that with that control subject, it doesn't matter whether you test it time zero, whether you test them again 12 hours later the next day, they have a pretty consistent ability to tolerate this ice bath for a certain period of time on average. Now, if you take a patient who's on methadone maintenance therapy, you'll find that their threshold or their ability to experience the pain is pretty similar to controls. However, their ability to actually tolerate that pain or keep their arms submerged in the ice bath is significantly diminished compared to the controls. So it's as if they're able to experience the pain in the same manner, but their ability to stand the pain or tolerate it is significantly diminished. Okay. And so would you say, because it seems like that that could be explained by the receptor changes that we've been talking about, or it could also be due to sort of a lack of coping mechanism or kind of the classic, they're just being wimps argument which I guess is not necessarily more volitional, but more due to behavioral interventions and factors and things. Uh, this is true, and you can actually demonstrate a similar type of effect in uh, patients with other abuse issues, such as cocaine. So there, there is comparison data with patients who abuse other substances, such as cocaine, although I don't think the evidence for that is quite as clear as what was demonstrated in this study. 
The best evidence in humans for the existence of opioid-induced hyperalgesia comes from a more experimental model, a randomized trial in, in surgical patients who receive an opioid, for example, fentanyl, for their surgical pain. And what they have shown in, in several studies is the existence of hyperalgesia at the site of surgical incisions. So, um, uh, so Dr. Brush, so there's, we've talked about mouse paws on heat plates. We've talked about people with hands in cold water. Is there any other weird stuff in the studies that they're doing where you've got a hand in cold water and another hand on something else? Because this is all to measure pain pathways, it sounds like. So there is a more sensitive way to evaluate a subject's ability to both experience pain as well as mitigate the experience of pain. And the test that has been done in research models is known as the DNIC, or the Diffuse Noxious Inhibitory Control Test. So what this does is it utilizes the cold presser test that we spoke about before, where the subject will submerge their arm in an ice bath. But in this case, they're also receiving a second painful stimulus, and that's to the other arm. There's a control stimulus, which is a heat stimulus to the arm at time zero. And let's say subject A, who has never been exposed to opioids before. Um, so I'll be subject A. You'll be subject A. I've never been exposed to opioids before. I've got my hand on a heat stimulus. Yes. Uh, well, a, a heat stimulus to the forearm. Forearm. It's a brief, rapid heat stimulus that you would then rate on a scale of 0 to 10 and tell me how painful it was. So, Matt, how painful was that when I just burned your arm? It's a, it's a 5. It's a 5. Okay. I'm a strong man. Now, I want you to dip your other arm into an ice bath, leave it there for a few seconds, and now I'm going to apply the exact same heat stimulus that I just applied moments ago to your other arm. Do we actually have to be doing this in real life, Dr. Brush? I didn't didn't realize... No, just kidding. (laughs) So now that I've applied that same heat stimulus again while your other arm is in an ice bath, how painful is that? Uh, I'd say it's a three. Okay, so your pain level or perception of the pain was diminished. Well, it's likely that the central nervous system, uh, without your known involvement, has done something there to dampen that pain signal, and that's what's known as this diffuse noxious inhibitory control. It's your ability to dampen the experience of pain. There's an old folk remedy that if you have a toothache, you put an ice cube in your hand between your thumb and forefinger, and now your tooth doesn't hurt anymore, and this is an experimental way of showing the same type of an effect. Now let's say that we have another subject who is chronically exposed to opioids. They're on methadone every day. If you repeat this... So that would be be you, Dr. Brash? That would be me. That would be me. So now my forearm is going to be stimulated again with this painful heat stimulus. And I might say that that pain, again, I'll just say it's the same as yours, is a 5. It hurt hurt about a 5. Now I'm going to put my other arm into an ice bath, and I'm going to apply that same heat stimulus again, the second stimulus... And unlike you, who said that that pain went down to about a three, I'm going to say it's still a five. And that's, that's what you would see uh, with a control subject versus an opioid, chronic opioid-exposed subject. So it seems that in the opioid-tolerant patient or chronic opioid-exposed patient, um, that their ability to uh, dampen their experience of pain is diminished. So it's almost like their auto-regulation. And, and from a protective, from an evolutionary standpoint, that kind of makes sense, I guess. You know, if you've got two painful stimuli, you don't want to be so distracted by one. I don't know, actually. Is there, is there a reason? Do they come up with a reason for why we do that? Well, I think that because you're already experiencing discomfort in some manner, whether it's an ice bath or whatever it might be, you've immediately triggered 
a central nervous system response to try to dampen that pain because you know pain is only adaptive to a certain point. Uh, it's adaptive to the point where you want to pull your hand out of the ice bath or you want to get your hand out of the fire. But experiencing pain beyond that really has no function. It's not good to continue to experience pain. It's maladaptive. We would all be miserable if, if our experience of pain didn't go away. So it, it's the, the brain's way of being able to deal with pain, to dampen the experience of pain. And I guess on some level, while I have no evidence to back this up, that might be theoretically the basis behind distracting injury and sort of clearing C-spine. If somebody has another source of pain, that might modulate how they're experiencing pain elsewhere. And so maybe they won't notice that they've got some pain in their neck. Exactly. With absolutely no evidence to back that up myself, but it just, I like to bring things home. Intuitively, I think that is exactly what we're saying. And I think that we're also saying that the use of opioids um, sort of is superseding our uh, intrinsic pathways to deal with pain and on a chronic basis appear to be interfering with that to the extent that we're in a maladaptive manner experiencing pain or potentially hyperalgesia. Okay. Bringing this back to kind of the initial, really the real reason why we're talking about this, because as much as we love mice and ice buckets, it's really about the patients that we see who are on opiates who seem to have an ever-increasing need for opioid control and our kind of inability to keep up with it. Have you ever sort of brought this up with patients, or have you? Does it? how does it affect your practice? Well, I think it's pretty clear that opioid therapy for chronic pain has a failure rate because we see it every day in the emergency department and in clinics, you know, and the idea that there are certainly a subset, the size of which is, is not well known, certainly a subset of patients who, despite being maintained on high doses of opioid pain medications, are still coming to their doctors with complaints of worsening pain or failure to control pain, the chronic experience of pain. So I think from that standpoint, it's, it's pretty clear to all of us, at least intuitively, that opioids are certainly not a panacea for, for pain in, in the chronic pain population. No, I think that's, that's very reasonable. Just actually on my last shift in ED, I had somebody who came in who was maybe not driving perfectly well. And when I looked at their medical records, I saw that they had been on prescribed 100 Percocet a week for the last two years by a very responsible provider who was trying to control their pain and make them functional but ignoring the toxic level of acetaminophen in that amount of Vicodin, it's questionable what's going on on a receptor basis in that person because these are people who, when they get their opioids, are still having a lot of pain. I really appreciated the article because I find that it adds yet another element of discussion with my, with my patients that are seeking pain medications because I think oftentimes you see patients in pain who want their pain controlled but beyond that, they're just frustrated. You know, they, they've been living with this pain for a long time, and it's not getting better, or they injure themselves, and they don't understand why they're experiencing such a high level of pain. And being able to discuss with them that this is possibly a sequela of their long-term opioid use, not in a moralistic way or a judgment way, but in a real... I think sometimes we don't understand the side effects and the long-term consequences of some of these medications. And in order to empower patients to both realize what they're taking and maybe to motivate them to modulate their current pain regimen, we have to let them know that there are consequences to these chronic opioid usage. And one of that is when they have an acute pain exposure, it becomes much harder to control that pain. Well, I think it presents a real challenge for us to have these conversations with patients because 
they have for so long been accustomed to the idea that their pain will be treated with an opioid pain medication uh, because that's what society believes is the most effective way to treat pain. It's opiates, morphine. So I mean, if you try to break down the issue to its basic, the most basic level, what you have is a patient who's saying, I have chronic pain. I am chronically administered opiates. They are not working. I need more opiates. And it, it's really hard to turn that around and explain to them what you're asking me to do is give you more of the medication that isn't working for you. So I, I think that we have to have these discussions, though, and try to help patients find other ways of coping with their pain. And in some cases, it may actually be that an increased level of opioid may make their pain more tolerable and be an effective solution. But from the emergency department, I don't think that that's a very effective management strategy because we do not have a long-term relationship with these patients. And any dose escalations that would be done for failure of pain control or tolerance issues should be done through a primary care provider or pain clinics. But for us in the emergency department or acute care setting, it becomes much more challenging to have these discussions and to try to help them with their pain issues. Yeah, I think it's about planting seeds. I think it's just very similar to end-of-life issues. As an emergency physician who just met somebody, I really am the last person in the world who should be discussing what they want to have happen should their heart or lungs stop beating. It really should be the doctor that's been treating them for 20 years. However, I sometimes find that our ability to be a new set of eyes on a situation can provide patients with some insight and some points of view that they hadn't previously been exposed to, and maybe they'll bring that back to their doctor and talk to them about it, or maybe they'll understand what's going on. And I think by no means neither of us is saying we shouldn't be giving opiates to people in pain. I, I mean, opiates are one of, in, in many ways, one of the wonder drugs of our time. I mean, imagine a, a world without any sort of opiate pain control. That being said, we've sort of been failing these patients for a long time by merely pain gets opiates, big pain gets big opiates, and when opiates aren't working, you get even more opiates. And hopefully, one of the things I loved about this article is in, in addition to explaining the why of it and the what of it, it really promised that we need some further research and some better agents for pain. And additionally, some maybe some behavioral methods that people have been using, but we can't just keep throwing opiates at patients, especially if there's actual objective animal and human data that that could be harming them. Yeah, and I, I think also that we do need to take a step back a little bit with these patients, too, and consider that, yes, this could be a failure of opioid therapy due to several different issues, uh, one of which may be the topic we're discussing of hyperalgesia. Tolerance is another issue, in which case, you know, as I mentioned, giving some opiates may actually provide some improvement, but we also have to consider what their disease states are as well. It's easy to assume that patients are seeking drugs or that this is just their chronic issue, but we do want to evaluate them to make sure there's no new actual underlying medical condition to explain their pain either. Quick, one quick thing, actually. Uh, I love the word hyperalgesia, Dr. Brush. Could you please define hyperalgesia? Well, I'm glad that you've asked that, Dr. Zuckerman. Uh, we should define that term before going further. Opioid-induced hyperalgesia is the phenomenon that is characterized by a heightened perception of pain related to the use of opioids in the absence of any disease progression or withdrawal states. And, and that comes essentially from hyperalgesia, essentially stuff hurts more than it should. Exactly. To be contrasted with a similar term, allodynia. 
Correct. So hyperalgesia, to define that term itself, would be that one patient would experience venipuncture as a 2 out of 10 pain. Someone who with hyperalgesia, when they're getting an IV placed, might be jumping off the stretcher, screaming, crying, say it's a 10 out of 10 pain. So that we would generally think of as a hyperalgesic type response. Where saladinia might be, I don't know, let's Aladinia say, would be I like were on a date with somebody and I brush their arm and they start screaming. Exactly. And one example of that might be a patient with arsenic poisoning chronically who uh, has so much pain uh, just from bed sheets touching their toes. Now, I thank you very much for taking the time to join me today to talk about the article. As we said, it's the December 2012 issue of Journal of Medical Toxicology. Dr. Eric Brush, check it out. I think this is the beginning in a huge area of research and discussion, and hopefully this conversation continues and informs our practice. And thank you. It's been my pleasure. And that was a great discussion with Eric Brush about opioid-induced hyperalgesia. We'll post a link to that paper on our website, toxtalk.org. That's T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And I didn't want to leave you listeners with the sense that there is nothing to be done for the opioid-induced hyperalgesia. And so for our next segment, we'll be talking to Steve Bird about some strategies that he's used to try and control acute pain in opioid tolerance patients. And so that's the next segment. Hello, Matt Zuckerman here with another segment on Tox Talk, and today I'm here with Steve Bird. Hi. Steve, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm the Program Director and Vice Chair of Education at the University of Massachusetts Emergency Medicine Residency and also one of the Tox guys here at UMass. Yes, which there are a large, a large number. And some Tox women. Yes, absolutely. Yes. A good balance. A minion of Tox people. Oh, that's terrible. What do you, I don't know what you would call that group, like a group of toxicologists. Is that a school or a... Or a murder? A murder of toxicologists. I like that. That's actually really good. I'm going to push for that. So earlier on the show, we had been talking with Eric Brush about opioids and some of the unintended effects of opioid agonists when we use them to treat pain and some of the effects on NMDA receptors. And I think as a, as a physician, what I take from that is, well, what am I supposed to do then? Because if the opioids aren't going to help or aren't going to help control the pain, um, or if I have a patient who's just in exquisite pain, I mean, you're not telling me not to use opioids. And working with you, Steve, I know that you have dealt with this problem and, and come up with some, uh, some solutions. Well, I don't know if there are solutions. There are some tacks that I use uh, in order to try to, to get adequate analgesia for those patients. But you're absolutely right. And one of those is low-dose ketamine as an adjunct to opiates or other methods of pain control. Okay. So you're talking like 0.1 mg per kg or? Yes. 0.1 to 0.25 milligrams per kilo is typically what I do. You can always give more. So I don't think there's anything wrong with starting at 0.1 and, and titrating as needed. Okay. And what led you to kind of even think about that? Was that just something you came up with or did you read about something somewhere? You know, I don't know where it actually first came about, but I've been doing it for five years or so. I think it's useful and the literature would support it's useful for burn patients, for dressing changes. And it just kind of seems to make sense. You know, I think at one some point, do you when do you stop the cocktail of things that you're going to give a patient? So if you give a cocktail of two things versus a cocktail of five things, will you get better analgesia or 
decreased time to requesting the next dose of analgesics with the cocktail of five? Maybe, but at some point you have to say enough's enough. And it seemed to me that using low-dose ketamine as an adjunct makes sense. And I think, fortunately, since I've started doing it, the literature has borne that out, I think. Well, that is that is a good thing. I think you are predicting the future there. And we should also say that whenever we talk about these things, while they are food for thought, we are not giving specific medical advice to anyone and always review the literature and make your own decisions. We're just physicians talking about what we've what we've tried and what we found to be useful. And yeah, in terms of literature, there's a few things, just a brief review of the literature. The um, Australian and New Zealand College of Anesthetists and, and Faculty of Pain Medicine put out a rather comprehensive guide to managing acute pain. And within that guide, they do mention use of ketamine as an adjuvant to opioids. And then even in more of a published forum, there was an article in Anesthesia and Analgesia in uh, 2004, there is an article by Supermanian, uh, Ketamine as Adjuvant Analgesic to Opioids, and that's a nice review of ketamine. Now, a lot of that is ketamine for um, epidural or ketamine for PCA use. I think in the emergency department, we're really looking at bolus dose, low dose ketamine in addition to whatever we're giving. And it seems like those articles have shown that it can decrease the VAS scores, the pain scores, and decrease the time between dosing of pain medications. Yeah, I think that latter part is important. We care that the patient has a clinically significant decrease in their pain as measured by the VAS. And what is that? Maybe it's 16 millimeters on a VAS score, but it, it actually depends on what their initial pain was. But we'll assume that they had a lot of pain, and that's why they're requiring this. A 12 out of 10. Yes. I've never heard that before. Amazing. Yes. This thing goes up to 11. The you know So a VAS score of... 16 to 22 probably represents a change in VAS of 16 to 22 millimeters probably represents a clinically significant decrease or change in pain at the higher end of the pain scale. We all want patients to have that, but I think importantly in the emergency department, a increased time to their next request for analgesics is really what most people working in the emergency department at that time are looking for. Right? We would rather that they ask for some pain meds every two hours as opposed to every 30 minutes, assuming your patients stay in the emergency department that long. Yes. Or my favorite, the, the patients that are incredibly obtunded and then wake up just long enough to say, I'm having pain, and then they become back obtunded. Yes. So, right. So I think that's clinically, clinically relevant. And I think you had mentioned maybe sometimes using it in trauma or... Well, I've used it in all sorts of methods. Uh, burn patients, I think, is where I kind of first started using it. But absolutely using it in non-opiate naive patients, patients on methadone maintenance treatment, uh, patients who are on high-dose methadone for chronic pain or for people who use heroin. I think any of those people, uh, ketamine as an adjunct is important or a possibility. And it's nice to consider, too, and it makes sense from a toxicologic perspective, because one of the theories behind the opioid-induced hyperalgesia is the NMDA agonism. And so giving ketamine an NMDA antagonist might, in theory, remove some of that hyperalgesia. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, it's an interesting theory, and there's loads of research to be done. I think our society is ripe for this. Doing a well-controlled study is difficult. I think you're going to need a lot of numbers in order to to determine everything because the population is so heterogeneous. 
And then the other thing I like about some of the reviews is they also look at adverse effects. And I know some physicians would be reluctant to use ketamine because they've given it for sedations or for other, they've given larger doses. And sometimes they've gotten some of the hallucination and some of the kind of uh, dysphoric effects that you'll sometimes see with higher doses of ketamine. It seems like in most of these reviews, there were a minimal number of side effects given the low dose used, the 0.1, which is about a tenth or less of what we typically use for high dose ketamine. So lower side effect profile and avoiding the side effects of large doses of opioids, you know, in terms of constipation and in terms of sometimes mental status effects. Ketamine is nice because they're still going to keep breathing when they get a little bit of it. That's right. Also decrease the incidence of nausea and vomiting. Uh, although ketamine is emetogenic as well, at the higher doses, I haven't seen any literature that supports that it's hyperemetic. Is that a word? Emetogenic at the low dose used, at, you know, 0.1 to 0.25 milligrams per kilo. The other thing to keep in mind, Matt, is we're not, you know, at the one to two milligrams per kilo dose, we are inducing a form of general anesthesia, and that's not the case here. It's not that these patients become comatose at 0.1 milligrams per kilo as an adjunct to their opioid therapy. It provides some analgesia and decreases opiate requirements, but they are not comatose. I think that's the goal. You want a patient that's still talking to you, but able to actually tell you, yes, doctor, my pain is, is better. That's right. Okay. And then have you encountered any surprises or adverse effects using it? Any resistance from nurses? No, I've experienced nothing other than, interestingly, when I'm using ketamine for procedural sedation and decidedly small number, that's less than 10, of patients who use different substances to varying degrees, but who use them a lot. My experience, and I'd be curious if other people have found this as well, that sometimes those patients have a more dysphoric um, experience experience with the ketamine so that I've had to use something else like propofol to nearly general anesthesia levels in order to get them calmed down. So if someone has a, a dislocated elbow and they are combative and yelling and so forth at one to two milligrams per kilo of ketamine, it's hard to put that elbow back in. So I haven't seen anything in the literature published about that, but that has been my experience. So I tend to not use ketamine alone for sedation in patients with substance abuse problems or patients who may be a bit obstreperous. You know, honestly, that now that you say that, I haven't thought about that before, but I have had a couple of sort of, let's say, bad trips of patients with ketamine. And it seemed like those were patients that had a prior history. And I don't know if, I mean, you're absolutely right. More research needs to be done. I think that that could be out there, though, Either they're sort of hardwired, maybe, and their brain chemistry has been altered slightly, or maybe it's just they start to feel ketamine, which is similar to a number of illicit and abused drugs, and uh, maybe reminds them of that bad trip they had. I guess, I don't know, similarly to uh, when the person who maybe had a little too much tequila in Cancun smells a whiff of it, and then maybe has more of an adverse reaction than the others. I don't know. That's interesting, though. I was thinking more of Tijuana, Tijuana. in Cancun. Okay, Tijuana. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Actually, my favorite ketamine sedation story was when I used ketamine. This is sedation dose, you know, um, anesthetic dose ketamine for someone who then uh, started screaming in the department, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. And that's just very disconcerting for other patients to hear. And so we had to switch to a different agent. Quickly. Quickly, yes. Although if your patient is saying, I'm dying, usually they're not. 
But yeah, um, anything else to add? Well, the other interesting thing I think about treating acute pain in non-opiate naive patients is the potential use of the super high potency opioids. I haven't found much or any literature on this, and it's just something I've thought about. So if if a patient is on methadone maintenance, you know, we give them morphine or dilaudid or fentanyl at some point, and the dose needed to help their pain is the dose needed. But there certainly is resistance when you're talking multiple grams of fentanyl for nurses and physicians to keep administering it for fear of, of overdosing. A medication that is typically given in micrograms. Correct. Yes. But what if one were to use super high potency, like sufentanil or even carfentanil, which is not approved for use in humans, but something that is super potent. So the potency related to the mu receptor binding, if you displace methadone with sufentanil or carfentanil, would you then induce analgesia? Because methadone by itself, I mean, it has some, obviously it has some analgesic effects, but they are relatively short duration compared to the prevention of opioid withdrawal or craving effects. Right. One of the reasons why the dosing for methadone for pain control is often multiple doses a day versus for withdrawal is usually once daily dosing. That's right. So so I think it's just an interesting theory that what if you gave them small doses of sufentanil or even carfentanil, would you preferentially bind the opioid receptors with those superpotent opiates and effect some analgesia? I think that's a that's a great thought. I mean, effectively, it's it's exactly what you're doing when somebody's on heroin and then uses Suboxone and all of a sudden loses their high. You're putting something in that also binds to the receptor, but maybe has less potency when it does. But you would be doing the reverse: something that binds to the receptor but might increase potency. Uh, might increase analgesia. Yeah, increase analgesia. I think that's and and if it's a if it's a super short acting agent that would allow for exactly what you're looking for, which is pain control within a confined setting. Okay, so food for thought for future research. Other adjuvants that are currently being looked at always include uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, which function via different pathways, and even uh, micro-low doses, so micro doses of naloxone, which typically is a reversal agent, but some people have used tiny, tiny doses to effectively reduce some of the noxious effects of opioids. I don't think that's something that our opioid-dependent or our opioid-tolerant patients are going to want to be guinea pigs on, because if you overshoot that mark just a tiny bit, you precipitate withdrawal, but a lot of different areas of research. That's true. And I think the other point relative to methadone, one of the problems when these patients present to the emergency department and then they're admitted is there's a reluctance to give them the methadone, perhaps, or you delay it. And one of the reasons that these patients have increased pain is likely due to some opiate withdrawal. So you have to give them the methadone or whatever they've been taking in order to prevent the withdrawal, but you also need to treat their pain. And it is a bit of a sticky wicket for all of the providers due to knowledge of the issue, not wanting to perpetuate the addiction or the tolerance or the dependence, which generally is not really valid. But our society needs some of this research to be performed so we can take better care of our patients. 
I completely agree. So I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today about your use of ketamine. It's something I haven't... As a practitioner. Yes, as a practitioner. Sorry, as a practitioner. (laughs) It's something that I I haven't actually used before, but I'm looking forward to trying out. Next time I have a opioid tolerant patient who has a corneal abrasion or a fracture or something else, um, those patients can be very difficult to get comfortable. And it sounds like you've had some limited success with ketamine. As some modicum of success. A modicum, uh, modicum, yes. Well, thank you again. You're welcome. My pleasure. Good seeing you. And that's it for another episode of Talks Talk. I want to thank you for joining me on this episode. Please check out our website. That's ToxTalk.org, T-O-X-T-A-L-K.org. Also, you can uh, get in touch with us via our Twitter feed at ToxTalk, as well as our Facebook page. Anyone with any show suggestions or things they'd like to hear discussed on the show, feel free to drop us a line. Additionally, we've started a Flickr group where you can submit and see talks-related photos. These can be handy. A lot of us have taken these during our practice or are putting together a talk and need some good, high-quality photos for that. So feel free to check out that Flickr group. That's the Toxicology Flickr group. You can get a link to that on our website. ToxTalk is a production of the Division of Toxicology and the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Massachusetts School of Medicine. I'm Matt Zuckerman, signing off. Thank you.